That was beautiful. Please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. As we're in the midst of Epiphany, which is looking at the knowledge and wisdom of Jesus Christ, I've decided to go into the epistle reading of the lectionary and step out of Luke for a moment and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, perhaps one of the best known of the Pauline writings. We often call it the chapter of love. I want you to imagine two Christians that are walking along the way, and they come to a, a homeless person who is asking for food. The first one takes some money and gives it to the person, but as they walk further away out of earshot, he says, I can't stand people like that, but the Bible says I have to give to the poor, so I do. I just hope the city will sometime remove all those types of people so I don't have to see them. Imagine two other Christians, one a PhD in theology, very knowledgeable. The other can prophesy the future, but the first is condescending to her students, and the second uses his gift to take advantage of the fear of people. They both have little to no compassion for the persons they serve. And last, imagine a person who gives so much of their income away to feeding programs that his own body is malnourished. And he explains that to everyone around him, how he gives everything that he has, and that's why his body is hurting. In addition, when he speaks to the, of those he feeds, he has nothing but disdain for them. Now, obviously, you will recognize the opening words of Paul in his 13th chapter to the Corinthian Christians. And what's interesting is that the Christians in that seaside city had divorced their religious piety, their religious acts, the things they did in the name of God, so that they did the right things, but they had no love for the people that they were doing it for. Now what's interesting about that is that the non-religious, of course, look at Christians who do that, and they can see it clearly that it's so hypocritical. And yet we as Christians can often get so focused on doing the right thing by our religious standards that we miss the obvious reality of our prideful disregard for others. And if it's not prideful disregard, it's a, a fearful or a protective disregard, or even an irritated disregard that sees others as a bother in our spiritual walk. So as we read these words, let's recognize that who Paul is talking to is, isn't the world. He's speaking to Christians. It's right in the middle of his teachings on some of the problems the church was experiencing. And he inserts this chapter to take us back to the very core of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Good, pious, religious people who forget that love is the point of all of this and everything that we do. If we don't have love, then everything else is just empty. It's not only missing, it's fundamentally wrong in the way that we live our lives. 
So let's hear what Paul has to say. First Corinthians, the first letter that he wrote to the church in Corinth, and the 13th chapter will do the whole. Paul writes, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in the part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Now keep that open before you as we study these words. Let's pray. Father, we are yours. We've come to the Father's house. We're warm in this place. We love you and we're loved by you. And we have these religious teachings that are designed to help us love. And yet so easily they can be the core of who we are rather than your love flowing through us. So be with us as we talk today, as we think, as we're, we reason. Help us be mature in this uh, understanding of faith and life. Speak, of course, to each of us as you do in that unique voice, that unique hearing that each of us have. And help each of us to make whatever steps we need to make, whatever changes we need to make. And of course, we'll give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as you can see, this wonderful section of 1 Corinthians 13 is organized beginning and end with the importance and the supremacy of love. It is a chapter full of verbs, what love does and what love does not do. And it's a chapter explaining the maturity and the durability of the profound, the ultimate, 
the things that do not pass away. It is only love, as Paul explains to us clearly, it's only love that defines the true life as God intended for his people to live and to experience. But the difficulty, of course, that has caused Paul to have to say all of these words is that the church in Corinth wasn't being very loving. They were arguing over all kinds of points of theology and practice and life. And love is not that easy for us to live. As you know, I usually read a portion of this scripture when I do a wedding. All of you that I've married and had the honor to do so. I almost always have this strong desire, and I've even done it a couple of times, but it doesn't play very well, so I don't, I don't do it anymore. But I always have this strong desire when I start to read these words from 1 Corinthians 13 to just simply stop after I read the words, love is patient. I feel like saying, let's just start there. Once you've conquered that, then we'll talk about all the other 15 <laughs> verbs that you need to do. But of course, I've learned to not stop and say that. So I go on, and I read this amazingly simple list of what love does and does not, these 16 verbs, as though it's going to be a piece of cake. These two newlyweds are just going to have a great time of actually loving each other in all the ways that love does and does not act. Frederick Buechner makes an interesting observa observation when he says these words. Words as familiar as these are like coins worn smooth with long handling. After a while, it's hard to tell where they come from and what they are worth. This morning we want to take these familiar words and recognize that they are worth everything. Far more than our religious piety, our religious behaviors, our religious actions. In fact, what we're going to do is to contrast what we often see in religion with how the heart of God teaches us to live and to love. Now, we could do this in several ways, as I was thinking of all the different patterns. We could simply look at the superiority of love over, as Paul does, tongues, prophecy, knowledge, giving to the poor, uh, but we don't have time this morning to do all of those. I would encourage you to do that. Think of it and contrast and compare all the different things that he's saying. Think about it in your own life, how you live and how you act. What do you value and why do you value that? What do you think success is for you in a spiritual Christian walk? What does it look like? This chapter is profound in its implication for how we actually live. But instead, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the verbs themselves. And even then, we're only going to look at the positive verbs. You might want to take time to look at the negative. And so as we look at these seven verbs, what love does, and describe what it is that religion contrasts it with, we want to think about each of these and just allow it to be a moment of analysis for us. So first, let's just take that statement, love is patient. Love is kind. Now, in contrast, religious piety is most often demanding. Religion often demands 
immediate obedience to the religious expectation of the group and immediate maturity of the individual, often without the kindness of grace to let the person grow. Love, on the other hand, is patient, expecting others to grow into that mature, loving individual that God is in the process of creating. Religion, on the other hand, has no patience for growth and doesn't take individual journeys and individual struggles and individual paths into consideration, for it simply is a blanket statement of what it is that a Christian might look like. Now, as I think about that, it's helpful to think about other fields in which this same thing is true. Imagine a parent who is patiently working toward the maturity of their child. Contrast that with a, a parent who is demanding immediate maturity and obedience that is far outstripping their moment in development or even their maturation in thinking. Imagine what those two course of actions will produce in this human being that is soon going to be launched into the world without that parent there. God is patient and kind, and he asks us to be patient and kind as we love the others in our relationship. So do we? Is, does that define me? Does that define you? Are we patient and kind do we extend grace towards those with whom we share the home, the church, the community, our workplaces, our classroom? Love is patient and kind. Next, he says, love rejoices with the truth. Truth in love, he says in another place, sets a person free. It sets them free from all kinds of error and sin that damages and holds them back and brings all kinds of sorrow. But in religion, what we often see is truth being used as a weapon to attack people who don't agree with our perspective or even with the Bible itself and attack those who do not accept that truth. You may be aware, of course, that there are those today who see themselves as being responsible to defend our faith, and they see that responsibility as attacking anyone who's theologically different from themselves. Our airwaves are filled with persons doing that. One of the most scathing letters I ever personally received was from a person who daily listened to these preachers and attacked me viciously and inaccurately. I still bleed from that kind of of wound. So what about us? Do we truth in love or do we attack with truth? Paul continues and explains that love protects and it trusts the beloved. Contrast that with often being directive and controlling such that we don't trust the other to make wise choices for themselves. As, as uh, many of you know, in my own dissertation, I studied trust and trust trauma. And in so doing, I was informed by Doris Brothers' works on the types of trust that there are. She identified four types, and the most mature, most difficult, that she says many people never achieve, is the trust 
as others as self-trusting, which means trusting others to be mature in their own choices, in their own journey toward faith, toward maturation. Trust without controlling, trust without directing, trust that is protection without dependence and needing me to make choices that are right for you. Now again, when we love and trust and protect our beloved without directing and controlling and making them dependent upon us, then our beloved can grow. And they grow in such a way that they don't need our presence for we find them connecting maturely with God themselves and directing their own lives in their own journey as they become mature people in their lives. So, again, let's ask ourselves the, tw the question, are we trusting and protecting towards others without controlling and directing fellow Christians? Does our community as a whole, our church family of God, our free Methodist community throughout the state and the world, does our community develop people who are mature in their journey, working out their salvation in the safety of community? Or do we lack trust in them and therefore create dependence on us and our controlling religion? And then last, at least for the time we have, again, I would encourage you, this, you could spend a good uh, month just on, on this chapter alone. But the last we're going to study today, love lives in hope and perseverance. Per perseverance when difficulty comes. Contrast that with religion that often causes us to fear the future rather than to have hope in the future, to fear what's happening in the world, rather to have hope in a God who is bringing his story to completion. Fear of our own failure to live up to what religious expectations might be and the religious requirement. It's interesting to me that much of our religious teaching on the end of the world, the end, eschatos, eschatology, the eschatology of the church often emphasizes not the hope we have in Christ, but the destruction we will have in the world. And the focal point is not up towards what God is doing, but down towards the destruction that we see happening around us. And of course, it isn't just religion that is doing that to us. Our popular culture has picked up on this fear of the future. Back in 2012, the Mayan calendar said that the earth was going to burn up. We have similar kinds of fears with climate change, with the caliphate of ISIS, nuclear madness, there's a perversive fear of the future that has gripped our world, even among the Christians. The protective, hopeful, persevering love of God has been shoved away and replaced with fear of the future. So where are we? How do we think of the future? How do we communicate to a culture that is so scared how do we express the hope that we have in a persevering God who has always and will always be at work to care for his people, to care for his creation? 
How do we express this love of God that permeates both animate and inanimate? Paul finally ends his chapter by once more repeating the supremacy of love as he explains that when everything else is gone, there will be three things, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these three is love. May the love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be with you now and forever. Let us pray.